You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to invite you now to go ahead and get in a comfortable position. If you're visiting with us, uh, we have a time of Scripture in silence as a part of our gatherings together because we are a people who understand that we live in a very busy and noisy world. And we live in a world where we are constantly pressed in by the noise of life and the many voices that reach out to us. Uh, and this is a time to where we as a people have chosen to make space. And that's an important idea, the idea of hospitality, of making room in our minds and in our hearts and in our time with God, for God. This gathering has lots of noise, music, words, prayers, beautiful noise to the Lord, I believe. We hope that God speaks through the music. We hope that God speaks through the scripture. We hope that God speaks through the table. But we also believe that His Holy Spirit lives inside of us and that there are times where God wants to speak to us. Um, For those of you who may not be comfortable with that idea of God speaking, uh, know that God's Spirit works inside of us in whatever way He desires. And when we say speaking, we may or may not hear an audible voice. We may just simply rest in the presence of the Lord. Bottom line is, in the life of God's people, they made room for silence and rest. And we as a people rarely do that. And so this will be just a simple, short where we sit quiet before the Lord. The hope is that we as a people, as I've listened to many of you, because I'm constantly asking, and I love the responses, many of you are telling me that as hard as this time is for you, you may get a minute where your mind doesn't ping-pong all over the place. You're starting to hunger for that time of silence with God. You're starting to hunger for that rest. And that's the idea. I think that's the Spirit's work. Uh, So we will read a scripture out loud and then invite you to simply be silent in the presence of the Lord, for He is gathered here with us. And if we are His people, lives inside of us, and to just simply rest in the presence of God. So our scripture this morning that might lead or guide our thoughts is Colossians 3. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Be still and know that the Lord is God. Father God, we praise you and we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts, that you are holy and that you are God and that you are good and that you are mighty, but that you know each one of us as your children and that you meet with us, that your spirit lives within us, that he yearns for us jealously as your scriptures have said that He longs to produce in us a life of love and joy and peace, of patience, kindness and goodness, gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And yet we fall short. We sin against You. We take the reins back from You. 
We seek to be lords of our own lives at times. We seek to take what isn't ours to be gods in our own little world. As there are times that we just openly and willfully rebel against you, Father, and we ask that you would forgive us. And we know that you do. We know that you stand ready to forgive. But you have asked us to be open and honest with you, to confess these things to with you. And so, Father, we lay them out before you. Our anxieties and our fears, our struggles, our selfishness, our pride. And Father, we ask that you would meet us here through your Spirit, that he would have his way with us. That you would meet us here, that you would illumine and guide us, that you would be a shield over us, that you would be under us and over us and beside us to our right and to our left. That you would be powerful within us, yet lowly and meek. And that you would just simply be among us this day. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see. Our ears that we would hear. Our hearts that we would feel the invitation you extend to us. Our minds that we would believe deeply and think clearly about the glorious gospel that you have given to us. In the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's children said, Amen. Well, we, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. As we offer some words of devotion for today's gathering at the table. In the words of Jesus... Or in the words of Luke, you hear the story or an account of Jesus in his preparation for the Passover, which then he turns into the Lord's Supper. And in verse 7, Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, and Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. I want to offer just a brief Background, this Passover was a meal practiced by the Jews and it reminded them of the deliverance of, from the Egyptian slavery. And it was designed by the Lord, this Passover meal, to engage all five senses, to engage the life of the community of a home. And in the Jewish home, it wasn't always just mother, father, brother, sisters. The Jewish home could have included extended family. It could have included those that worked with the head of the household. It could have included more than just the immediate family. So don't allow yourself to move into the mindset of thinking that the Passover meal was just for mom and dad and brother and sister or that sort of thing. It was often a communal experience, but not only was it communal from house to house, it was communal within the entire nation. So the house over there and the house over there and the house over there all went through this this season of participation where their lives were completely changed for more than just a day but for a week. As they would clean out their homes and they might even play games to make it fun for the kids and they would begin to get their hearts ready as they would get their homes ready and their pots and pans and all of their dishes ready for this meal. And What we need to remember is that this meal was a way of life. Not only was it something celebrated with rhythm, but it was something that did disrupt their life. For a season. And this deliverance that they would celebrate where the Lord saved them, they would remember how each Hebrew family was to cover the doorposts and the lentils of their houses with the blood of a pure and innocent sacrificial lamb. And the Lord passed over them and saved them as He delivered them from slavery, from oppression, from idolatry, from that disobedience of the Egyptian people 
And this plague that would kill the firstborn male of every Egyptian family as well as the firstborn of every livestock would pass over them and they would see the salvation of the Lord. And this meal would include some terribly bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of that redemption. But it would also include this pure lamb that would remind them of the sacrificial lamb that God called them to as He passed over them. And so in verse 14, the hour has come for Passover, and Jesus reclines at the table with the apostles with Him, and there He said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then He took a cup, and after giving thanks, He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of the one portraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so they began to argue among themselves which of them it would be that was going to do this thing. And so here's the scene, and Jesus is at this table, and he begins to reframe the Passover meal in this new covenant meal that we call communion, that some of us call Lord's Supper, that some of us call the Eucharist. And this new covenant meal points both backward and forward to redemption. And Jesus says in Luke that he wouldn't eat this meal until the kingdom comes or until the kingdom had been inaugurated. And what we understand is that the kingdom has been inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's often a part of the text that we miss. As Jesus says, I won't be present with you to do this again until the kingdom has been inaugurated. And now, as resurrection has come and the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, the kingdom of God has come, not in its fullness, not until Jesus returns will it come in its fullness, but the rule and the reign and the righteousness and the love of God has now come into the world, is breaking in into the world where all who want to turn and believe that Jesus is Lord can come into this life with God, this citizenship of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will never be in trouble, a kingdom where Jesus is Lord, a kingdom where we are made one, a kingdom where we are made new. This kingdom has come, and every week when we gather, for what I don't understand it, but in some mysterious way, in every week that we gather, Jesus is present with us at this table based on his own promise. That there's actually mystery at this table. And I come from a tradition, the tradition even of this church, where we've symbolized this table to the degree that we've almost missed the presence of Christ at the table. And this table becomes a symbol, but it becomes more than a symbol where the bread may not actually become the body of Jesus and the cup may not actually become the blood of Jesus, but according to the words of Jesus, in some way this bread and this cup presents to us the very spiritual reality of Christ's presence among us. Christ is at work among us in this table. And we know this strange sort of theology of worship that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And Jesus said, but two or more are gathered, I will be with them. So we know Jesus is with us through His Spirit, but somehow... In this text, 
And if you read, it's amazing. If you read the first four centuries of the church fathers, before the Catholic Church, if you read the first four centuries of the church fathers and their commentary on these texts, they had this belief that Jesus was genuinely present with them at the table. And, and that's an Eastern faith and an Eastern tradition, but in our Western mind, we lose that sense of mystery. And Jesus himself says that he is here with us. We know His Spirit lives within us. And we know that where two or more are gathered in His name, He is there. And so, yes, this meal points us backward to our moment of redemption. This meal points us forward to that moment of redemption when Jesus returns. But this meal has the power to do something to us, in us, through us, in the very present. We're reminded of who we are when we hold this bread and this cup and the life that we're invited to experience now. This life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control that we've been recreated for this life because Jesus has sent His power-giving Spirit to live within us. And if that isn't enough, He invites us to eat this meal with Him as His kingdom people, that He is present with us at this table and this is His table. And so we commune with God at this table and so we call it communion. This is the supper of the Lord. It's His table. He's the host. So we call it the Lord's Supper. But it is also called Eucharist. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll see in a minute, Paul called it a meal of thanksgiving. And in the Greek, the word thanksgiving is eucharistesis, which is where we get the word Eucharist. And in the very first century of the New Testament church, that was the common meal, that was the common name of the meal was that it was the Eucharist. That is not a Catholic church thing or a high church thing. That is actually a biblical thing. We in our Protestantism moved away from everything and lost even some of our original language. It is the meal of thanksgiving. And so it becomes something more than just mere symbol for us if we let it. This table becomes a faith-forming, soul-shaping, life-giving mysterious beauty given to us as the people of God. And it's no small thing. It's no small thing, church, that what has replaced a sacrificial altar, now let's think like Christians who have a history, that what's replaced a sacrificial altar is a table. The table becomes the central symbol, not a cross, the table, becomes the central symbol of a gathered people's worship, just like the altar was a central symbol of the Jewish people's worship. The table now becomes a central symbol of the gathered people's worship. And for the first 400 years of the church's inception, every Sunday they took the table. Every Sunday. It wasn't a monthly thing, and it wasn't a quarterly thing. In church history, in church history and tradition, for the first 400 years of the church's existence, post-Pentecost, the table was observed and celebrated every single first day of the week. It's in history. And at the centerpiece of our gathering is a table. A place of welcome. That's what a table is in Eastern tradition. It's a place of welcome. For us, it's something we eat on or around. 
In Jesus' day, the table was a place of welcome. This is a symbol of hospitality. It is a place where we are welcomed by God through Christ to come and dine with Him in preparation for that great heavenly feast, that big banquet, that big, big party that's going to take place in glory. And each week we learn to meet what it means to participate in God's life as we experience the welcome of God around this table. I grew up in a tradition where we took Lord's Supper or Communion or Eucharist where we celebrated it every week. And so I don't know how long I've been going to quote church, but if you take one Sunday, what's that, 52 weeks a year times who knows how many years, that's how many times I've sat at the table. And it wasn't for me until about the last eight years that I started to be, really understand the beauty of the table. And that it's a centerpiece of welcome in the life of the people of God. And what I love about the placement of our table is when you walk in, it's the first thing you see. Now, I get picked on by the people back there in the booth and the people up here at the front because I'm always straightening the table. This has been driving me nuts this morning, by the way. Sorry, let me just... It is a little crooked, isn't it? Why do I do that? I have no idea. But I can tell you it's the first thing that people see when they walk in. And that's appropriate. Because the table that says, do this do in remembrance of me, should also say, all those who keep company with Jesus are welcome. Because it's a centerpiece of hospitality. It is a centerpiece of Christian worship. Because it is where the cross and the resurrection culminates into what we know as our salvation and redemption. Where we look back to our redemption and forward to our redemption into the present and how redemption is playing itself out in our lives. And each week we come and we gather around this table to participate in the welcome of God and no longer do we experience God through sacrifices to overcome our exclusion from God. We are welcomed into God's life through our participation in the life of Christ. And so, the final text I wanted to give us this morning is 1 Corinthians 11. Now, just a little context. The early church celebrated what was called an agape meal. It was a love meal. That's what, <laughs> that's what it would be called. It would be a love feast. And as you can imagine, over the course of time, there were problems with that language in Roman culture. So they had to cut it out, I think, about the second century. But for about the first hundred years or so, maybe 150 years, the church, and particularly Corinth, you see it happening, would, when they would gather, they would actually eat together every Sunday. And as they would eat a common meal... Either before or after the common meal, they would move into the Lord's Supper. They would move straight into the Eucharist. Now, there was great symbol to that because as they gathered for a meal, they were saying it's God's people that all are welcomed at the table. Right? And then, then they would either open or they would close with this other meal that was actually the primal meal that made sense of the agape meal. They would gather at the table with the bread and the wine that made sense of the, all the, the roasted stuff that they would eat before or after, and they would celebrate as a family. They did this every week. What happened with Corinth is there was divisions in Corinth. 
People were dividing. There was, some, there was some sin that was being overlooked in Corinth. That's important to know. There were some divisions of sort of spiritual classism that was taking place in Corinth, and that's important to know. People speaking in tongues are better than people who prophesy are better than people who get knowledge. And so there was this division in Corinth. So not only was there division and sin and gossip and other things like that in Corinth, but they would come every week to celebrate this meal of welcome and redemption, and they would bring all that there as if nothing had changed. And so this one particular time, I guess Paul decided to write him because what was happening was, see, when they would share a common meal, it was customary for the rich to bring the food. The poor couldn't bring the food, right? But the poor who couldn't bring the food didn't mean they couldn't eat. Now, you still got to bring a side dish this Sunday, right? Like, so don't get any ideas. But the whole idea was, if you can't bring a side dish, we got you covered, right? We'll take care of it. What was happening is, the rich were coming early and the poor were coming late. And here's the thing we don't know about the context. A lot of reasons why the poor was coming late is because they had to work day jobs. They had to work. They were day laborers. So they would come to the gathered meal a little late, but they would come and there'd be no food left. The people who were able to get there earlier, primarily the rich, would get there early and they would eat all the food and there'd be nothing left for the poor. And not only that, for some reason, what, what was supposed to be casual drink turned into drunkenness. And so you had the church. <laughs> yeah, man, we have always been a messed up people. It just, you know, should give us hope a lot. You had the church gathering and not caring about the poor, not caring about one another, kind of getting their own, right? They were getting their own. They were making it a private meal. You get that? They were making it a private meal in a communal setting. Do you understand that? Do you see where I'm going with how we traditionally practice Lord's Supper? They're making it a private meal in a communal setting. The poor were being excluded, and some people were just flat out drunk when it all started. And so Paul writes in a very Paul-esque fashion, and he says, But in the following instructions, verse 17, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. Then, of course, this is a very interesting statement that I'd like to unpack today, but I can't. But, of course, there must be divisions among you so that you have God's approval, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. In other words, the mature will be separated from the mature to show where the purity really is in the life of the church. So let's not be surprised when we always have division because maybe that's somewhat necessary at times. Separates the followers from the posers and the fans. Right? Verse 20, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. What? For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? <laughs> Paul says, what? <laughs> I just thought that was great. Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? It's amazing how the poor is always the centerpiece in the church of God. Isn't it? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after saying, 
This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilt of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, and the body of Christ there, I believe he's talking about the church, and scholars, most scholars believe he's talking about the church, without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and have come have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about other matters when I arrive. And that's a lot. And I'm already over my time. That's a shame. But thankfully, we don't have to get out early, so we're going to go the full time. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I just got to figure something out next gathering. So I grew up in a tradition that practiced this every Sunday, and it was impressed upon me by those presiding at the table that, that this was not to be a practice to be trifled with, that we were exhorted somehow in some way to participate in this experience in a worthy manner so that we would not eat or drink judgment upon ourselves. And I'm not sure that it was ever spelled out or, or exactly explained what worthy manner was, but I'm pretty sure that it had something to do with the alignment of our, my heart and purity with God. But as I've come to understand this notion of table, and as I've come to understand the context of Corinthians, I think unworthy manner is much, 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 much more faithful to the notion of the table. And that is this. First off, let's get some things out of the way. None of us are worthy for the table, so that just ain't happening. The blood of Christ and the body of Christ what makes us worthy, so that can't be what Paul's talking about. But that's the way it was always communicated to me. So what worthy manner is he speaking of? Well, what's the context? There was divisions in the church. There was selfishness in the church. There was a disregard for the, for the needy and the poor in the church. And what was a communal meal had turned into a privatized experience where the only thing George was interested in was getting his fill. And that is unworthy to the community of God. That's just an unworthy heart when you think about what the table is. The table should be a place much more than just, hey, we get to come and eat and then we get to share in the bread and the cup together. I get to have my private time with God or I need to I have my own time with God. Now that I think of the table as a place of Christ's welcome, it's his, table, it's his table, it's his invitation, it's his welcome. And worthy manner to me now means that I welcome others the way Christ has welcomed them. If I live a life of unwelcome, and if I come to the table with a posture of unwelcome, then that is an unworthy manner. The fact is, we got people in our church who don't like other people in the church, and that happens everywhere, and you've got to get that right before you come to the table. No one gets to choose who sits at the table. Because to come to the table with that kind of unwelcome heart and to expect God to welcome us in is to disregard the very hospitality of God. There can't be a lack of hospitality at this table. 
And I want to present to you just five very simple things that the table teaches us every week. Five very simple things. Number one, we learn mutual submission at the table. See, at the table, we submit to Jesus' lordship. When you and I sit at the table of the bread and the cup, we're submitting to the lordship that redeems us. But we're also submitting to mutual submission. We're also submitting to one another. Because the heart of the table says that I don't get to choose who gets to come in the kingdom of God. I mean, if you've met Dustin, you'll know that he's a pretty okay guy. But he's kind of weird. Just a little. And he would say the same for me. Actually, he's not weird at all. But if you meet one another and you say, you know, I'd never hang out with Andy through the week. Well, that's fine. But as my brother Andy and I sit at the table and we learn to welcome each other, we learn to submit to one another. I'm not allowed to posture myself over Andy or Andy over me. Now, if you remember the Luke 22 example, remember what was happening? What was happening right after the communion experience? What was happening right after the Lord's Supper with the disciples? A dispute broke out among them. Do you remember the text? They were arguing who was going to be better. Who's going to be the leader? At the table. Like they're sitting at the table, Jesus' table, and they're arguing who's going to be the lead guy. And Jesus says, you don't become a lead guy. You become a servant. And you make room for others. And you submit to others. And that's how you lead. By listening and learning and loving and being present with others and submitting to others. At the table, we learn mutual submission. John may not like me very much, but he's reminded at the table he's got to learn how to love me. He's got to learn how. And I do too. Number two, the table opens us up to thanksgiving. In verse 24, the word eucharistoresis, which is where we get the word eucharist, comes giving thanks. This is a table of thanksgiving. And when we develop a posture of thanksgiving, what we end up doing is we end up opening ourselves up to receiving. When we come to the table, we come with a heart of thanksgiving because God welcomes all of us here. And not just that, when I really realize the gift that surely is in my life as a spiritual mother, when I realize the gift that Ariel and Jason is into my life as a brother and sister, and I realize who Dan and Susan and Clifton are in my life, then I, and I remember that it's because of this, what this table points us to that I have them in my life, and that, that creates a sense of thanksgiving in my heart. Because God welcomes me into His life. The table opens us up to thanksgiving. And when we, open, when we are open to thanksgiving, we find ourselves open to receiving. I'm convinced that I think the only way that you and I can come to this table while harboring unforgiveness or unwelcome in our heart is because we're not thankful for what's really given to us in this table. Sunday is just an event that we go to when it's convenient. And the church is just something we do because we know it's right. But it's not really a sense of who we are and a family that we are growing to live into. You know, I don't know if you know this, but the current data is that North American church is only getting three weeks out of every eight weeks of a family's life in terms of the gatherings. You know, that's so every three weeks out of eight weeks, the church gets that. 
So that means John and Sherry come only three weeks out of some eight-week period. And if you want to think about it, our church, our fluctuating numbers kind of reflects that. But I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we started understanding more of the purpose of the table. I wonder if we'd negotiate church gatherings as easily if we understood the meaning of the table. And maybe that's also one thing the table's supposed to do for us. Number three, we learn to see striving. At the table, we learn to stop striving and wrestling because in our mutual submission to the Lord and our mutual submission to one another, we have to check our egos in at the door. We tend to the presence of Christ by quieting our egos and releasing the urge to control and solve problems. Have you ever thought about that about the table? When you're holding the bread and the wine, it's a reminder that God's capable of solving your problems, that we're not in control. And it works out better if we're not, by the way. The table can teach us to stop striving. Number four, we can learn one anotherness in the table. We can learn that we're here not just as own individuals. We're here not just as individual members of a church, but we're here in the one anotherness of God. Paul had a problem with their table experience because they had division among them. That's not one anotherness. That was me-centeredness. At the table, we remind ourselves that we are to welcome one another, to forgive one another, to share burdens of one another, to care for one another, to honor one another, because Christ has honored us and brought us all to the table. We don't disregard others because they don't have what we think they should have. That's what Corinth does. That's not what we are called to do. And then finally, the reconciliation and renewal of all things. I think most of all in the table, we're rehearsing the death and we're rehearsing the resurrection and we're making these realities present to us in this body and blood of Jesus. There's this pattern that we participate in and it is a pattern of forgiveness of sins. It's a pattern of reconciliation. It's a pattern of renewal of all things. And each time we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded that we have received forgiveness and we're also reminded that we're to give forgiveness. Each time that we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded that we're made new and that we're called to join God when we leave this table in making things new. The reality of this table is that we can't come to this table, we can't come to this table harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. We can't come to this table worthy if we are disregarding our brother and sister. And so for you, church, you have a really great advantage between now and 1245 because you and I, we have a whole hour and we've got a couple of hours to really examine our hearts here, which is why Paul said, before you come, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to see where you really are. And here's the best part. Then you take whatever it is that's in your heart and you bring it to the table and you put it at the bread and the body and the cup and the blood of Jesus. You put it at the cross. And you find welcome here. You find forgiveness here. 
and you find the reminder that you've got to go. If there's something you've got to make right, then go make it right. But we come and we bring it all to the table where we're welcomed by Christ in all of our filthiness and all of our sinfulness and we're reconciled to God and Jesus and we move toward reconciliation to one another. The table has so much meaning for us, church, and we just don't have time to unpack it in one gathering. But just think about those things as we all come to the table. At 12.45 today, we will come to the table. But we're going to sing a song about coming to the table to prepare us to get there from here. So let's stand. I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing this song together. Father God, we ask that you would remind us of our place at the table that our place has been prepared for you, for, uh, by you for us to come and remember who we are because of what you have done, that this is a centerpiece of hospitality where you have made room in your life for us and yet you call us to make room in our lives for another. So Father, teach us what it means to come to the table and teach us what it means to take the heart of this table out into all the other tables we meet in throughout the week that we would live lives of welcome, that we would live lives of hospitality, lives of reconciliation, and that we would proclaim the purpose and the meaning behind those lives, and that the purpose and meaning is you, Lord. So, Father, examine, help us examine our hearts every week as we gather at this table. Thank you for making a way for us always, despite the filthiness of our hearts. Thank you for loving us just as we are, but not being willing to leave us there, but wanting to make us more into the image of you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Let's sing together. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.